opening the scriptures to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, the fifth chapter, reading verses 1 through 11, chapter 5 of Romans. The word of God reads in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The word of God. Coming to a chapter in which Paul is moving from the privileges of justification, verses 1 and 2, to the challenges of life in verses 3 through 11. He has already expressed the result of justification. We have the privilege of, of peace in the past, grace in the present, and glory in the future. Very full comfort. For justified persons, our status before God is complete and irreversible. Now, if eternity is settled, what can Paul tell us about our earthly situation? What about the challenges of life? We have difficulties and problems and uncertainties. There are stresses and strains and sorrows of daily life. Sometimes it seems that there's a big gap between the wonders of God's gospel and the weariness of our life. It's very encouraging to read Paul's honesty and realism. He summarizes the implications of being right with God. and Then he goes on next to the problems of life. How should we deal with what life throws at us? This is a very rich and a very condensed paragraph. We'll outline three major features and their supporting ideas. Paul identifies three challenges that might appear to contest the privileges of the justified. 
privileges we have of peace in the past, grace in the present, and glory in the future. He brings up three issues. The challenge of suffering, verses 3 through 5. The challenge of sinfulness, verses 6 through 8. And the challenge of security, verses 9 through 11. The challenge of suffering. The first challenge in verses 3 through 5 is suffering. Paul introduces the subject of suffering or tribulation or afflictions. He uses a very strong word for intense, painful, unending pressure. We experience many pressures that may be physical or mental or emotional or spiritual. Pressures influence our relationships and our vocation. There are many kinds of sufferings. How should we manage our sufferings? How can we explain our sufferings? We'll think now about the principles and the pattern and the priority of suffering. Principles of suffering. Paul does not avoid the issue. His answer is astonishing. He writes, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. To glory means to exalt, to boast, to triumph. We glory in tribulations. Notice the preposition in, in tribulation. Paul doesn't say after, as if we're going to have a hard time now for a few years, but afterwards we'll be happy. We will rejoice after our sufferings. That is true, but that's not what he's stating here. Paul does not say in spite of, as if there's suffering in life, but there are a lot of other things. In spite of our sufferings, we can rejoice in something else. Paul does say we also glory in tribulations, as if we rejoice because of them. They make us to exalt. Remember who is speaking. Remember Paul's acquaintance with sufferings. He is the man who has experienced many burdens. In 2 Corinthians 11, it's recorded he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, whipped, deserted, and betrayed. He has gone hungry. He has lost his family, his money, his friends. He is one nearly crushed by suffering. He knows about suffering. Yet he asserts that we glory in our tribulation. How is this possible? Does this mean that we attend inspiring and special meetings that work up an emotional euphoria? No. We also glory in tribulations knowing. There's something that we know. There's a doctrine that supports us. There's a truth we understand. There's a practical value of doctrine. How often have we wished not for doctrine, but for something practical? There is nothing more practical than doctrine. When suffering comes, happy meetings will not help you. Psychological excitement will not help you. Pious sayings will not help you. Truth will help you. There is something that we know. What is it? We know that in these sufferings, God is not punishing us. They're not sent 
really to hurt us or to injure us. They are not evidences that God is angry with us. They don't attack our salvation. We are justified. We are forgiven. God will never strike us in wrath. Whatever the explanation of your suffering, it is not that God wants to hurt you. He may, as our Heavenly Father, discipline us. Discipline is not contrary to love. Discipline is not evidence of divine anger. It is because God loves us that he disciplines us. Westminster Confession of Faith says, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Charles Spurgeon comments on Jeremiah 30, verse 11. Jeremiah 30, verse 11 reads, God speaking, I will correct thee in measure. Spurgeon says, Yet see, the correction is in measure. He gives us love without measure, but chastisement in measure. It is the measure of wisdom, the measure of sympathy, the measure of love, by which our chastisement is regulated. Far be it from us to rebel against the appointment so divine. Do you have a scar from a knife? The scar I'm thinking about is not from misusing a knife or from an attacker, but from a surgeon. It was the best thing that ever happened to you. The scar, therefore, may indicate foolishness or wisdom, depending on who caused it. When God disciplines us because he loves us, these are some of the principles of suffering. The pattern of suffering. Paul explains the divine use of tribulations. Tribulations produces perseverance or endurance, the ability to continue. Perseverance produces character or the quality of being approved. Character produces hope, the expectation of something certain. As you pass through sufferings, you know God better than before. You know more of his love, his faithfulness, his wisdom. You can say with the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Paul lists a simple pattern of suffering. The priorities of suffering. Justification teaches us that even our sufferings are a blessing from our Father's hand. They are sent for our good. They are not destructive, but productive. Paul doesn't say that we have to like them, we don't enjoy them, we don't want them. Suffering may bring us to tears, but in our weeping we may also glory in suffering. We know that God has a purpose. Paul wants us to be filled with a wonderful sense of this love being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know that the hope of glory will not disappoint us because this love is so great. We must notice that we do not measure the greatness of God's love for us by our capacity to experience it. 
we develop a capacity to experience it by understanding the greatness of God's love. The love of God is poured out into our hearts must never be measured by our experience of it. Rather, the experience we have, God's love, needs to be developed in a capacity to receive its sheer greatness of it. The greatness of it, not, of it is not found in my heart. The greatness of it is found in what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. These are some of the priorities of suffering. Whenever the pressures of our lives, they are not out of God's control, but God designs to use them to transform you from what you are to what he wants to make you. Under that pressure, you can grow strong. Under that pressure, your Christian character can be formed. Under that pressure, your Christ-likeness is matured as you learn the principles of suffering, as you experience the pattern of suffering, as you understand the priorities of suffering. The first challenge of life is suffering. The challenge of sinfulness, verses 6 through 8. Have you ever thought or ever, ever heard someone say, oh, I believe that God is love, but I just can't believe that he could love me. I believe that God forgives, but I can't believe he could forgive me. I'm too bad. I'm too unworthy. What I've done is too wicked. Paul asserts in these verses that God shows his love for us. God commends his love toward us. He demonstrates his love set forth. He wants us to be persuaded of his love. It's a word that is used to introduce his friend. God introduces us to his love. God wants us to be sure of his love. He commends it to us. He urges it upon us. And how does God do this? He takes us to the crucifixion of Christ. That's where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or in Paul's words, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The evidence of God's love is massive. It is overwhelming. It is persuasive. In the statement, Christ died for the ungodly, we can outline four thoughts. The person given, the suffering experience, the salvation provided, and the people saved. First is the person given. He is Christ. He is not an angel. He is not the greatest human being. He is a son of God. That's the evidence of God's love. The message of the Christian gospel is not to say to people who are bruised and broken and weary, you need to learn to love yourself. That is not the gospel. The gospel does not turn you into yourself and to teach you to love yourself. Our lives are overwhelmed with an awareness of sinfulness and the way our lives are destroyed either by our sin or by someone else's sins. You do not need to love yourself. You need the forgiveness of your sins. The point is that it is not my experience that is the measure of love, but what God has done is the measure of love. Christ died for the ungodly. He is the person given. The second is the suffering experience. Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't just suffer. It was more than ill treatment. 
He was crucified in shame and public exposure. He died abandoned by all. He died under the wrath of God. He testifies by quoting the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the evidence of God's love, the suffering experienced. Third, think about the salvation provided. Christ died for the ungodly. The preposition for means on our behalf, on our benefit. He died to bring us great benefit. His death was not pointless or meaningless. It accomplished something. That is the evidence of God's love, the salvation provided. Fourth is the person saved. Christ died for the ungodly. Sinful is the nature of those for whom he died. Paul remarks in verse 7 that human love is based on attraction or value. We love people who are beautiful. We love people who are kind. We love people who are attractive. God is different. His love is given to weak, ungodly sinners. Paul emphasizes our sinfulness. All that you can say that is bad about yourself is true. You only know a fraction of it. All that anybody could say about you that is bad, the reality is far worse. We are not good people. We are bad people. God, knowing that we are weak and godly sinners, knowing the worst thing you will ever do, say or think, gave his son to die for you. That is the evidence of his love. The person He didn't love us because he thought we were good. He knew we were evil. He loved us. Christ died for the ungodly. God is never going to be surprised. He will never be shocked about what sort of person you are. He knew your wickedness before he gave his son. How can you be uncertain that God will love you? He knew that you would not love him enough. He knew that you don't obey him the way you should. And he gave his son for you when you didn't obey him at all. Your faith isn't strong enough. God loved you when you had no faith. He loved you when you were far worse than you are now. Are you not sure of God's love because of your sins? You are the kind of people he loves. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now don't misunderstand this. The more convicted you are of your own sinfulness, the more you qualify for God's love. This is the wonder of the gospel. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus declared, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' enemies criticized him by saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. God wants you to be sure of his love. The second challenge of life is sinfulness. The challenge of security. 
verses 9 through 11. Paul is talking here about death and judgment, hell, the wrath of God. We understand that suffering doesn't diminish the love of God. Suffering is one of God's ways of challenging and changing you. Our sinfulness doesn't reduce the love of God. If you think of death, are you afraid? Are you troubled about the day of judgment? Paul gives us three reasons why we are secure when we think of the day of judgment. They are the change relationship, the living Savior, and the nature of justification. The first reason for security is the changed relationship. Verse 10. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God saved us when we were enemies. Won't he save us when we are his children? If he saved his enemies, he will deliver his beloved children. We have a changed relationship. The second reason for security is the living Savior. If we were reconciled by the death of his son, we will surely be saved by his life. What reconciled us was the dead body on the cross. Because of what Jesus did, God forgives us. The situation now is that the risen, reigning Savior sits at his right hand, interceding for us. We are saved through the death of his Son. We shall be saved by the life of Christ. The third reason for security is the nature of justification. Verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What does it mean to be saved? Salvation in the Bible is to be rescued from some calamity. If you're restored from sickness, you are saved. If you experience victory in battle, you are saved. Whenever anyone experiences rescue from a catastrophe, they experience salvation. There are lesser salvations, and there is the ultimate salvation. This is the rescue from supreme danger, the wrath of God. The nature of justification is that God saves his people from his wrath. We are saved by God from God. John Stott summarizes my writing, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Justification is God's final verdict on a purpose. Justification is the day of judgment brought forward. When you believe on Christ, God pronounces his final, unchangeable, everlasting verdict on you. He regards you as righteous, and that will never be canceled. Jesus said in John 5:24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Paul writes in Romans 8.30, Whom he justified, these he also glorified. When you believe in Christ, heaven is certain. All your sins are forgiven. You will not be condemned for them. Charles Spurgeon said, If you will look carefully into justification, you will see heaven hidden within it.
the reasons for many of our spiritual problems that we don't realize that just what justification really is. It is ultimate, decisive, and final. We keep acting as if we have something more to prove. We don't have anything more to do to satisfy God. Jesus has satisfied God for us. When you grasp this, your life will be transformed. So Paul writes, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. We rejoice not only in the gifts of God, but we rejoice in the gift of God himself. Because of justification, you who repent and believe are secure. This is the challenge of life, to rejoice in God. Is this how you are known? Do others recognize that you are rejoicing in God? Are we a congregation who, in the midst of perplexities of life, really rejoice in God? Or are we a congregation who is critical of others and burdened with religious duties? Do others see the joy of salvation in us? An elder in another Reformed church illustrates the challenges of life. One of his two sons fathered a child, then married the mother, but she deserted them. The elder's own wife left him, and the divorce became final. Because of budget cuts, he could only work part-time as a physical therapist and was scrambling to find work. In a letter, he wrote the following. With much time to myself, I have been able to penetrate a good many of the Puritan writers. Oh, I am so at home with them. What gracious, humble friendship they offer, such love for scriptures, and they give so freely. I weep for the condition of our churches, what we have settled for. Can our Father be pleased? Though Jesus brings us into the most eternal and pure relationship with his Father, I am an intruder, O oh, grace beyond understanding. The psalmist Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. The great need of the church is to return to the truth of the gospel. The great comfort of God's people is summarized in Heidelberg Catechism 1, which asks, What is thy only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him.
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access into grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We glory in our sufferings. We are saved from our sinfulness. We rejoice in our security. Through Jesus Christ, we have received reconciliation. Our current sufferings, sinfulness, and security are resolved in Jesus Christ, who enables us to rejoice in God in the challenges of life. Bow in prayer. Our gracious God, as we pour over the text and as we remember who is speaking this, a man who has known such extremes of suffering and difficulties, but also such a wonder of entering into your presence and knowing the reality of being cleansed from sin and of being alive in Jesus Christ, of having seen the result of that and knowing of the working of the Holy Spirit to hold us fast and to draw us into your presence. And so we ask as we ponder these things, whether it is the sorrows and the sufferings that are foremost in our thinking, or whether it is the wretchedness of our own sin, or whether it is the uncertainties of life and our longing for security, that we might turn once again to the scriptures and see that the gospel is Jesus Christ. It is he who accomplished our righteousness and now intercedes for us that we might rejoice in the living God. So grant your grace to those who are able to hear and comfort the hearts of those who are troubled and trouble the hearts of those who are comforted that together we might adore you and worship you, the living and the true God in all of the challenges of life. We plead for your mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.